Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the waves for Thursday, August 1st, the soft core rumpy pumpy edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. And I'm June Thomas, the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And Marsha, unfortunately, could not be with us for this episode, but she'll be back in two weeks. Um, we have such a good show on deck for today. A lot of juicy topics. But first, I want to thank our listeners who had a lot of great responses to the Riverside Church situation, which we discussed on our last episode. Um, I had asked sort of jokingly for examples of people going to sex shops with their colleagues, and we got a fair amount of them. One listener said that when she was in college, she worked on an all-female archaeological dig, which sounds dreamy, and said she and her coworkers went to Good Vibrations, a sex shop after work. She said it actually didn't feel inappropriate, in part because the professor who was running the dig didn't know what was happening. But she did say there was an uncomfortable part, which was when one of her coworkers, a married PhD student who identified as a liberal Christian, tried to talk her out of going to the sex shop because it would desense sex toys would desensitize her and ruin sex with quote unquote actual men. Um <laughs> And then we got another email from a female minister who has been to the Festival of Homilectics. Mm. She said it was a very social atmosphere. This is where the pastor of the Riverside Church went to the Smitten Kitten and, you know, allegedly coerced one of her colleagues into visiting the sex shop. This minister who wrote in noted that the lead pastor of the church is not necessarily in the position of authority, so it might not have been as appropriate as inappropriate as, you know, a boss taking her underlings to a sex store. She also had uh, some really good thoughts on what it's like to be a woman leader in a very male-dominated industry. Um, She said, many of us are still learning what it's like to be on a ministry staff team with other women because it's so rare. So we're navigating questions like, can this person be both my friend and my colleague? She said, In her experience, sometimes older women on her staff have felt the need to mother her Mm. in a way that wouldn't happen in other professions, and she feels that's inappropriate and diminished her authority. She also said she once visited a sex shop with a parishioner, (laughs) her church organist, so this is clearly not as strange as I believed it to be during this episode. Listeners, if you have any more stories about going to sex shops with your colleagues, I'm still listening. (laughs) All right. I think we have one order of business before we get on to the show. Jean? Yes. So our amazing production assistant, Alex Barish, is leaving us because he has a great Boo. job. <laughs> so we're sorry to lose him, but we're super excited about his new position. But that means that we and the Culture Gab Fest podcast are looking for a new production assistant. The job will be listed on the slate.com slash jobs site very soon. But for the moment, let me tell you a little bit about the job. It involves coming up with a list of potential topics for each week's episode, calling into conference calls, compiling a packet of research materials and reading materials, sometimes setting up screeners or books or things like that, coming to the studio to attend tapings, to kind of fact check live and to take notes for the episode show page, writing up the show page and a little bit of promoting on social media. So it's a big job, but it is a fun and a job in which you learn a lot and we do pay. So if you're interested, as I said, go to slate.com slash jobs. But you can also express interest by sending your resume to production assistant at slate.com. And if you have any more questions, write to us at the waves at slate.com. Uh, I feel so bittersweetly about that news. Um, no. But yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what great people show up in our application packet. All right. The show. The show. We're going to start out today talking about Jane Mayer's very long piece in The New Yorker about Al Franken. She fact-checked mm. the 
sexual harassment allegation that kicked off the rash of allegations against Al Franken. That allegation came from Leanne Tweeden. The the piece instigated a lot of conversation, I would say, among interested parties on the internet. Then we're going to talk about a different very long piece, a totally bizarre piece in New York Magazine about two women who ran a paternity scam against a bunch of men in the Boston area, including a Harvard professor who they very nearly conned out of house and home. And for our third topic, we're going to review the new season of Veronica Mars, which ends in a big surprise, which ends in a big surprise that might just be sexist. And speaking of things that could be sexist, (laughs) Nicole, what's our Slate Plus (laughs) segment this week? Well, for a Slate Plus, we're going to ask, is it sexist when men on dating apps ask for no drama in their bios, in their profiles. They're looking for a match, but they don't want any drama. And what exactly (laughs) does no drama mean? We're going to talk about that. And in the meantime, here's a quick little snippet from that segment. Half of millennial men don't want any drama in their relationships. (laughs) 25% of Gen X, you guys aren't off the hook. 25% of you don't want drama, the men that is. And 12% of baby boomer men, which... You know, when you're of a certain age, it's like what sorts of how, – how can you not have drama, you know? But I guess that's the question here is, is it sexist considering especially that men are the ones saying this a lot more than women? Is it sexist to ask for and want a no drama relationship? And what does that mean? Nicole, I'm so ready to hear what you think about this. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, Nicole, I... our online dating uh, correspondent. Um, yeah, and I guess we should All right, if you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, one final piece of business before our first topic. I want to let you all know that two weeks from now on our August 15th episode, we're going to be talking about Three Women, a new nonfiction book by Lisa Tadeo. It's a deeply reported book about the sex and romantic lives of three women in the U.S. Tadeo spent time living in these women's towns, reconstructing the stories of their desires. I'm about halfway through it. I cannot wait to talk about it with you two. And listeners, if you want to follow along with that conversation after having read the book, start reading the book. It's called Three Women. Okay, It is finally time to get started with our first topic, Al Franken, who resigned from the Senate after eight women accused him of sexual harassment and inappropriate behavior. Jane Mayer had a big new piece about him in The New Yorker. June, tell us about it. Right. So Al Franken resigned from the Senate, and I think it was January 2nd, 2018. And now in July of 2019, Jane Mayer, the big New Yorker writer, went to visit him and wrote a very long piece for The New Yorker. And to hear her kind of coverage of her own piece, in her view, she kind of fact-checked what happened during the accusations that that came against him. She has this this sort of line that he was on the losing side of Me Too, which led him to think about, quote, due process, proportionality of punishment, and the consequences of internet-fueled outrage. She visits Franken. She's clearly very sympathetic toward him. He cries. He's very regretful about having resigned. He clearly regrets that move. And she really goes in on the, the kind of the main accusation or the first accusation that like set off the others, which was with, by Leanne Tweeden, a conservative talk show host from California. And she doesn't spend very much time with the other seven accusers for whatever reason. And I think it's fair to say that she kind of, not kind of, that she suggests that there was a rush to judgment and there wasn't enough time spent and in the kind of mood that that the world was in around Brett Kavanaugh, around Roy Moore, which were kind of big at the time, that um, Al Franken was almost collateral damage in this in this Me Too rush, which I have to say is really not how I see this story. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... I would agree with you there, June. I also have been trying to figure out how much of my interpretation of the piece has been colored by the way Mayer has been talking about it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there's the piece itself. And Jane Mayer is, you know, highly acclaimed, an incredible reporter who has covered 
many important issues, including, you know, the Me Too movement. She's done reporting on um, accusations against Brett Kavanaugh and what have you. Um, but then she gets on Twitter and is like, the first draft of history was not fact-checked. <laughs> this, like, incredibly dramatic and sort of self-congratulatory, like, pumping up this piece as if it's going to totally dismantle the allegations against Al Franken and, like, everyone was wrong. And, you know, saying he was railroaded and and just retweeting a lot of praise of her piece. And I don't know. The, the piece itself, it did illuminate some... I don't know if I want to say lies that Leanne Tweeden told because I don't know if she actually knew she was telling a a falsehood or not. You know, she said the the famous picture where Al Franken is pretending to or maybe actually groping her breasts while she's sleeping. You know, Leanne Tweeden said that picture was taken on December 24th. It was actually taken on December 21st. She said it was only sent to her. It was actually sent to several other people, too. Like, I actually don't know if she knew that. Um, So, like, okay, cool. Like, not all of those facts line up. And, yes, perhaps people reporting on her accusation at the time should have done a little bit more digging. But the the bulk of her accusation, she said Al Franken stuck his tongue in her mouth while they were rehearsing this kiss. Like, Jane Mayer didn't disprove that. She... Mm -hmm. She raised questions about whether these two people would ever be alone together on a USO tour. You know, some people said that that was unlikely. But, like, I also saw that photo with my own two eyes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the extra context that she provides, which is that the breast groping was part of the skit that they performed, to me, doesn't at all make it more okay for him to reenact that offstage while she's sleeping. So I was I went into the article expecting to be totally floored by this dismantling of allegations and then didn't get that at all, especially because the other seven accusations, as you say, June, were barely addressed and, and certainly not dismantled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was, um, you know, our memories shift and change and so much time had passed between the alleged incident and when it first came to public attention. And there's all, you know, and I'm not discounting Tweedin's story at all, but, you know, sometimes Tweedin said that she was told this sketch was created for her or that Franken tweaked it for her to include this kiss and something like that. And then other people said, no, he's been doing that skit and we just removed um, a certain reference, a certain pop cultural reference at the time. So I think maybe in that case, maybe Franken, you know, kind of was just like, oh, sure, we're just doing this just for you. You know, that happens sometimes where people try to make you feel good about something or try to make you feel like it was customized, whatever. I can see that there are a lot of discrepancies and maybe what she thought was the truth really was not. But as far as she knew... She was telling what she knew, mm-hmm. and um, I, I understand that. But again, I've, I'm kind of in the same mind that the way Jane Mayer has been talking about it turned me off, and maybe, I don't know, maybe we could do that as a it's, it's sexist moment or something. I don't know, <laughs> but um, because she seems very much like I did this. This is just me um, dismantling the—I don't want to say dismantling the Me Too movement, yeah. but it makes me feel very uncomfortable— that someone is taking so much pride in throwing a black mark on something that needs to happen. We need to expose people who take advantage of their colleagues, who take advantage of their of the people who report to them in whatever situation it may be, whether it's a man or a woman, you know, whatever. It's still important. I think both things can be true. We need to hmm. do more fact checking. We need to do, you know, have proper due process, but we also can still believe that something is uncomfortable happening and that we Mm -hmm. we can just move on as if it you know just err on the side of caution and act like okay this this is the worst case scenario so let's go from there i think too that there's we've you know mayor brings up the cases of roy moore brett kavanaugh that were kind of in the air at the time as if to kind of compare franken to those men and the accusations Mm -hmm. against them and i don't think my memory of the time, which is is actually better than than what was going on around the Franken accusations, was that that people were extraordinarily conflicted. That you know, I remember Dahlia Lithwick writing a piece for Slate, going on on the media, and just really expressing 
just just very working through very conflicted feelings about what Franken is accused of is not on the scale of what Roy Moore or yeah. or, or uh, Brett Kavanaugh were accused of, and yet we see Republicans not caring about these accusations, carrying on and you know going ahead and just ignoring. Uh, the feelings of people who are extraordinarily hurt, who have been damaged by their behavior. And do we want to do the same, even though we never suggest that that these are exact parallels? So for me, that whole thing of, do you know, there's a kind of an undercurrent in Mayer's piece of like, Democrats were acting ridiculously. And I don't think that's the truth. I think mm-hmm. Democrats did react and respond differently to how Republicans did. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, the it's funny. The only people who I see really conflating the case of Al Franken with the case of Harvey Weinstein and Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and and whoever, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, Roy Moore, are people who are saying the Me Too movement has gone too far. Like I don't see any actual advocates for the Me Too movement or, you know, people who are aligned with its goals conflating what Al Franken did with what any of these other men allegedly did. I think it's dangerous to go around saying like, look at how all these other, you know, men who've done far worse things have Mm -hmm. evaded consequences. And Al Franken was removed from the Senate, which actually wasn't true. He resigned Mm -hmm. of his own free will. Mm -hmm. But just because other men who have allegedly sexually harassed or assaulted people have gone unscathed, it doesn't mean that Al Franken should. I don't think we should be drawing parallels between those two things. And and I feel like the people who spoke to Mayer and Mayer herself have, have been drawing those parallels or like erecting a straw man, I guess, mm-hmm. that I don't actually see borne out in the Me Too movement. It also felt like There was just a jumble of information in this 12,500 word piece that should have been. They seemed like they belonged in many different pieces or I I wasn't sure what I was supposed to take away from it. Like, okay, Al Franken is really sad and feels very bad and has, you know, had his livelihood upended. What does that have to do with the fact that Leanne Tweeden is a conservative and is friends with Sean Hannity, which, by the way, people already knew, like, This isn't news that she's may have had political motivations for bringing her accusation forward. Like and and what does that have to do with the the effects on Al Franken? Like I, I she Jane Mayer sort of comes right up to the line of saying tweet and lied, Franken was, you know, ousted too hastily. Um, but she never outright says like, oh, it seems like Leanne Tweeden was lying to oust this, you know, anti-Trump Democrat. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just it seems like the whole piece is her being like, oh, just asking questions here. Like, don't hold me accountable for any of the conclusions anyone draws based on this, like, very incomplete set of facts I put forward. Because the information, like, has to add up to something. Why does it matter if the breast groping photo took place um, or was taken on December 21st or 24th, unless you think it undermines Tweeden's entire accusation, and unless you think all the other, you know, seven accusations are lies or overreactions too, or or you think maybe they're outweighed by how sad Al Franken is right now. Otherwise, mm-hmm. why does it even matter? What are you trying to say in this piece? Yeah, I would have liked to have seen this as some kind of series, maybe, totally. you know, where Maybe she doesn't address all eight accusations, but because the the tweet and accusation is so top heavy in this piece, did Mayer do any other significant research in the other accusations? Because it kind of looks like from their absence in the piece, it kind of looks like uh, I couldn't find much to discredit them. So I have to go for this particular one to make you doubt. If you just have a little bit of a doubt, it can, you know, take away yeah. from everything. Yeah. So I feel like that's, if there were a series, I probably would be more inclined to, I don't know, go along with, I don't I don't want to say go along with it. I don't want to say like, I still don't believe, but there is just so much that's still up in the air about this. And, you know, I just don't have, I guess I'm supposed to have sympathy for Franken. And maybe I do. It's terrible when you lose out on what is one of the best parts of your life. But... I just think about other people who have been victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault and have keep watching, keep going to work and being and, you know, talking to their supervisor who did whatever or what, you know, and I'm 
I'm just kind of like, yeah, you're going to get reminders of it every day. And that's Mm -hmm. just kind of part of what many of us have had to deal with. And I'm sorry it's happening to you, but also... You're okay. Yeah, you know, I don't want to say you're not special, (laughs) but it's just like... Welcome to the club. <laughs> I don't, I don't, and that feels very callous. And I, I, you know, I'm, I don't wish that on anyone. I don't think that anybody should experience that kind of devastation in their lives on whatever level. But it's still just kind of, I don't know, maybe I am a little jaded. And <laughs> I'm just like, I don't, I don't have the sympathy for Franken that I guess I'm supposed to have based on this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like, it's he'll be okay. That- yeah. yeah, and Jane Mayer says in the excerpt that you read, June, this whole incident had, has forced him to rethink, like, the, how how damaging the Internet can be and, like, the hastiness with which the Me Too movement – I actually don't have the quote in front of me, but, you know, it's something yeah. like that. It doesn't once say it's forced him to reconsider how callous he was in terms of treating women with the same respect he treats men. It does. Mm-hmm. It didn't say, you know, it forced him to reconsider, like, why do I kiss women on the mouth all the time when I'm meeting them in professional settings? Why don't I ever kiss men that way? Huh, it must be something about how I see women. And, and why don't I care that when, you know, a woman has ducked her head when I tried to kiss her? Like, if that ever happened to me, if I went to kiss somebody on the mouth in a professional setting and they ducked to get to avoid me, I would be so humiliated. I would probably not show my face in the office for a week and I would thoroughly reconsider the way I treat people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not convinced that he has seen anything wrong with it, with what he's allegedly done. I mean, he hasn't denied kissing these women without consent or groping them. He says, I don't remember these women. And then plenty of his friends told Jane Mayer, like, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would stick his tongue down someone's throat and then turns around and says, he loves kissing people on the mouth. That's just what he does. It's a New York thing. No, it's not. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm not from New York, so I don't know, but it just seems yeah. not true. Right. <laughs> um, I've, I've, in the time that I've been here, no one has ever walked up to me and kissed me on the mouth or tried to kiss me on the mouth. Um, particularly yeah, not they want to work have it both ways. Yeah. And yeah, I was thinking about that too because either Twitter is just the small two percent of the news, uh, you know, reaction in the news, or it's enough to ruin your career. Like, what is it? Is you know, sometimes they tell us that Twitter, the Twitter outrage, barely makes a blip in someone's lives and now they're telling us no people you can you know lose your (laughs) career just from a hashtag or something you know so like (laughs) what what do you want it to be how what can we do here yeah and you know again the fact is as as we've all mentioned he resigned I understand completely feeling regretful of that you know it's just like you know I'll uh, Al Gore uh, just kind of accepted the, the uh, you know, I've just been listening to Fiasco. Like, we all have regrets about resigning ourselves too early. We left a job because we didn't like a co-worker or, or a boss. And then after we're like, why did I do that? And this is on such a huge scale. You're one of 100 people in the United States. and But you know what? 36 of your colleagues signed a letter. I don't want us to kind of rewrite history. And I also know that people, you know, that it was not a universal acclaim that he should have resigned. You know, I have a friend in Minnesota who said, you know what, who should have decided that is the voters of Minnesota. I mean, there, it's, <laughs> this, is, this is not like a clear cut thing, but... He made a decision. That decision is history. It's happened. It's done. And that's not to say that we should never fact check the past. But, you know, Al, you made your you made your bed. In many and ways. then he blamed one of his accusers. He's like, yeah. wow, I lost my job just because I tried to say thank you to somebody by giving her a kiss. <laughs> like, no, you lost your job because you resigned. It actually yeah. wasn't that woman. Yeah. Um, the, I want to say one more thing about the selective approach Mayer took to the facts in this story. Um, there have been two responses from reporters who have reported on other accusations against Al Franken, some of the ones that got a little less uh, space in Mayer's piece, one in Jezebel, one in the Huffington Post, people, you know, reporters who had written about other accusations and said she completely mischaracterized them in the piece, either, you know, undermining the severity of the accusations or sort of downplaying the, the contemporaneous corroboration that the reporters got. I also found a piece that Al Franken wrote 
in Mother Jones in 2004 about his time with the USO, where he talks about making jokes about the cheerleaders who were on the tour saying like, oh, I can't wait to go home and have sex with my wife while while thinking about the cheerleaders. And he says, you know, I certainly didn't behave paternalistically. I, I don't know if he means it that way, but he says, you know, basically I behaved like a father toward these this young hip hop trio on the tour. I did not behave that way toward the cheerleaders. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Mayer doesn't include anything that he says in that piece, in her piece. She does, however, include a quote from somebody who was on the USO tour with them who said, he always behaved with utmost respect toward the cheerleaders. You know, her decision to put somebody somebody else's interpretation of his behavior toward cheerleaders over his own words about how he behaved toward the cheerleaders and the, and the sexual joke that he made about them says to me a lot about who she thinks is credible mm-hmm. um, in this story. And and maybe she doesn't even trust Al Franken to be his own best advocate, because if you look at what he's actually done and actually said, he he doesn't do a good job exonerating himself. Mm-hmm. You know, even if if none of these accusations or, you know, half of the accusations had come to light. And I was trying to decide whether somebody who had a history, a long, many-year history of making sexualized jokes about women, his colleagues on a tour, I would say, you know, I don't think that person belongs in the U.S. Senate. Kind of wish that the people, the good people of Minnesota had, like, talked about that before Al Franken was elected to the Senate. If this is the time period where all of these alleged incidents took place— I think it's totally fair to look at the kinds of jokes that somebody was making around them and think like, huh, is the guy who's who's making jokes about making sexual jokes about his colleague? Do we think that that guy might like grope somebody? I I don't know. I'm not saying that it's like proof. But if you're trying to judge somebody's character and, and predilections in one certain time period, I don't think it's evidence worth keeping out of a piece you're trumpeting as like a triumph of fact checking. The piece was very really making the case for him being just like physically bumbling. He's just like one of those guys who's yeah. awkward with his body. Uh, OK, but maybe he's also very smart. Yes, and could yes, yes. probably pretty easily, you know, politicians contort themselves in all kinds of ways Indeed to get elected. Yeah. I'm sure he's capable of, you know, uh, keeping his hands to himself. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's all the time we have for Al Franken. Listeners, let us know. Did the piece change your opinion on Al Franken? Did you think Jane Mayer was fair? I'm sure we'll have a lot of good responses from you guys on that. Our email address is thewaves@slate.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, our next topic, a New York Magazine piece by Kara Balonik. Did I say that right? Yeah. By Kara Balonik, titled The Most Gullible Man in Cambridge. It's the story of Bruce Hay, a professor at Harvard Law, and two women, Maria Pia Schumann and Misha Hader, the latter a physics doctoral student at Harvard, who spent years trying to con Bruce Hay out of his money, his house, his job, allegedly. This is according to Hay. So this story is completely bonkers. I suggest all of our listeners read it for themselves. It very much resists summarizing, but uh, the gist of it is that Schumann hits on Hay at a hardware store. She's 20 years younger than him. She's beautiful. This is in 2015, I think. Hay is divorced but moved back in with his ex-wife, and they've had two more kids since their divorce, and they've agreed not to see other people. So he's, like, divorced but not really single. He has sex with Schumann. She says she's a lesbian, but he's just so remarkable and irresistible that she found herself attracted to him. So over the next couple of years, Schumann and Hayter, who's trans, convince Hay that he got Schumann pregnant. They make increasing demands on his time and money, make him believe he's the father of this child, even though Hay says he never ejaculated during sex. It's a really smart professor. They basically emotionally abuse him, try to get him to leave his ex-wife and family, say they'll file rape reports against him. 
they move into his house and move all his family's stuff out while he's away um, and set up a paper trail to make it look like he'd rented the house out to them. And as it turns out, Schumann and Hayter have run the same scam on other men in the Boston area with various levels of success. Wow. Yeah. was my response to that story. Yeah. Um, I want to know how you guys felt. What were your takeaways? So it really struck me between this and the Franken piece, how we consider it to be impolite to ask for the truth. How it is <laughs> oh, impolite wow. to confirm the truth. Wow. If you know that you have not ejaculated, and although it's possible, <laughs> you know, it's a very slight chance, you know, with... I, I don't know what the... Pre-cum and yes, motile sperm. Yes. It's very... <laughs> like, I don't know if that's a technical term, but we'll go, yes, pre-cum. If you, like, there's a very small chance, yes, that that could happen. But you are a fully grown man at this point. Um, <laughs> father of three. Father of three. Your personal life, your home life is complicated. Uh, just because a woman 20 years younger than you smiles and, you know, (laughs) flirts with you and makes you feel good does not mean that you have to go home with her. It does not mean that you have to uproot your life for this person. And then what's what's so striking is that Hay teaches a class on good judgment and decision making. And clearly this is just a professional thing for him. That's called irony. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) As it did not work in his life. And, you know, the title of the piece is The Most Gullible Man in Cambridge. I don't know. I, I don't. Maybe he is gullible, but I do think that he was needy um, in a certain kind of way. And that's and when you are a grifter, you can pick on people who kind of need whatever you're going to sell, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't we're making fun or poking, you know, yeah, doing yeah. a little lightly, you know, a little Ribbing. like, yeah, with him. But it's still just kind of like, what what was going on with you? Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> and then on, on another little thing um i'm just again concerned about when we have these accusations of you know that women have filed accusations against men for sexual harassment and now we have two articles by women debunking uh fact checking which is what you're supposed to do which is fine but i also wonder if people will kind of run with this where we're again where people are trying to prove the me too movement isn't all that's cracked up to be and maybe we should step back and make sure it doesn't run amok and ruin anybody's lives, which is, yes, exactly right. But again, I wonder if we're just kind of trying to paint women as liars in the same way that people always, you know, when there's a rape accusation, well, women lie about rape. That's mm-hmm. maybe like 5% of the accusation or what, you know, I don't have the or exact less, number. Yeah. yeah, it's a very low number. But those low numbers are enough for people to just go off and t- try to discredit women. So, again, I think we need to just be careful about yeah. the purposes of these investigations and what we're trying to prove with them. Yeah, it's. I mean, there was a discussion at Slate about why this story appeared. I mean, I think we all agree it's like it's. A fascinating story. It was well written. I would say that Kara is a friend of mine and, and I think she did a great job. But there's this question of, like, it, would we be interested in this? Would we, if it, if it wasn't the professor, but one of the other guys that she, that these women fooled, uh, yeah. you know, it's the Harvard connection. It's, it is also, I would say, the scale. It's the fact that he teaches this course in decision making and good judgment. Um, And I think the fact that there's a trans woman involved. Yeah. Well, and also it's interesting because you said, Christina, you know, that um, she says she's a lesbian. Well, I don't think she does say she's a lesbian. She says she was involved with a woman. um, But like there's a there's. Did I make that up? Well, I I might be wrong, but I think in the piece, you know, she tells him that that she just broke up with a woman. She doesn't actually, you know, identify as a lesbian. Clearly (laughs) she's she's expressing behavior that she's um but she doesn't actually identify as a lesbian and to me like that's a very small definitional thing but it's kind of what you were talking about nicole that we kind of make leaps we make leaps about like i can just see him like he's made that leap well she's a lesbian but she's interested in me like Mm. you know it's it's a sort of a a jumping to conclusions about a lot of things are are, are not questioning as you say and, and just like not not demanding a paternity test which you know as I say that like in other situations would I be quite so vehement about that but you know it's just kind of a basic uh, thing like before you 
take responsibility for a human, maybe just check that and that what you've been told is accurate. I also think it's because he he wanted it to be yeah, true. Like, yeah, it absolutely. seems like he wanted yeah. an excuse to have a family aside from his family. I also want to just say, in my defense, it does say she was a professed lesbian in the piece. It says she's a professed lesbian. This is Kara Bolinick paraphrasing Hay, saying mm-hmm. he thought it would be insulting for a heterosexual cisgender man to question a professed lesbian as to whether she'd had sex with other men. Mm-hmm. I, I take your point, though, June, and I actually don't know how she identifies. It, it never quotes Maria Pia Schumann in this piece at all. But I also think he is was like a guy going through a quote-unquote midlife crisis. By the way, I would love to see what women do during their own midlife crises. Like, <laughs> And he, you know, was maybe bored with his family, unfulfilled, believing he deserved more and better. Um, and so probably wanted it to be true that he fathered a child with this professed lesbian, with a, with a trans partner. And a French or, you accent. Know, Right. And the way he describes it in the piece is like they have this glamorous, you know, cosmopolitan life. They're sort of like globe trotters, And he he was just so entranced by them. Now, I also am not sure how much is this trying to make himself look gullible and well-meaning. Yeah. You know, he's like, it would be offensive to ask for a paternity test. So I never did. It would be <laughs> offensive to uh, ask whether her cancer was real. You know, Schumann said she had cancer and this is part of why he got so involved and 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 they were asking him for money and whatever. You know, it would be too offensive. So I never did it. You know, I, I'm actually not sure how much of that is true. And, and I think the fact that his ex-wife slash current domestic partner the fact that she immediately was like these people are scamming you yeah i think speaks to his willingness to delude himself and how clear it actually probably was that this was what was happening to your point nicole about are we going to demonize women who file harassment claims i mean these women not not these women only one of them um hater who was a doctoral student at Harvard reported Hay to Harvard's Title IX office. And so he's not teaching right now because this Title IX claim is being adjudicated. And uh, so the, you know, this story has been covered ad nauseum in the right wing press. And they're all saying, well, look, this is evidence of how Title IX is weaponized to ruin Mm -hmm. people's lives. Mm -hmm. When actually, it's not the Title IX claim that did any of this. It was it was him, you know, well, it was the women. But the Title IX claim is not what allowed him to give the women his computer passwords mm-hmm. or, you know, it's it's not what allowed them to take over his home. It's not what got him to remove his wife from his home's deed. It's, the Title IX claim is not what had him go home with this person or to her hotel and have sex with her after meeting her in a hardware store, 20 years younger, beautiful, and a quote-unquote professed lesbian. So actually, the Title IX complaint hasn't done anything yet except suspend him from teaching, which I actually don't know about Harvard's policies, but I imagine there has to be something other than just a random person saying, this person's harassing me in order for a Title IX complaint to suspend someone from teaching. You guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if Hay ever saw Schumann during her pregnancy. And then because I know that when the baby, according to the article, when the baby was born, she refused to Skype or like let him see the child or anything like that. Um, So I don't even know if he saw her carrying at any point in time. Mm -hmm. And oh, my God. um, I just am so struck by like similarities between this and your basic catfish scam mm-hmm. where someone, you know, refuses to uh, get on the phone with you. They refuse to show, send uh, FaceTime, face, or Skype. Yeah, FaceTime, Skype, anything like that. And it's just kind of like, oh, something's wrong. Like at some point you have to say they're not showing me themselves. And, you know, I, I think also this article reminds me of the summer of scam things that have been mm-hmm. uh, going on where, pe- where, where we've been highlighting women grifters, women scammers, which is fine. It's interesting you know everyone's like oh this is a lifetime movie or Mm -hmm. whatever (laughs) um but again i just kind of like what are we trying to do with this uh um what um what do we hope to what's the story that we're telling with these with these pieces yeah yeah i mean to me that really there are so many cases where 
where men don't take responsibility for their kids, for example. There are so many cases where professors do in a, in a more clear fashion, you know, take advantage of students and so on and so forth. And, and as fascinating and as as odd and as how, you know, how much we love to kind of fixate on the details of this story, it does feel I'm almost guilty about doing so, especially also because I don't even know the purpose of the scam. Like, it doesn't even, it mostly seems to yeah. be to punish the guy rather than to get money out of him. Like, it's not yeah. really extortion. It's just kind of torture. It's like yeah, what a cat would do with a little mouse. On this. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and at the end, the article ends asking Schumann why, let me find it, because I want to, because it was he so... Got, he got um, an anonymous text message or a text message from an unknown number right. saying, you know, stop looking for my motives. I just hate the patriarchy. That's it. Yes. And I was just like, come on. I don't, I find that so difficult to believe. I'm not, you know, not saying that that is, that he did not receive the text. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. I just think that anyone who says, I just hate the patriarchy. I, come on, there's something else. I just feel like this is all some sort of big performance art piece Mm -hmm. on wokeness. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, Hay wanted to appear woke by engaging in this relationship with this woman uh, trans woman um, and all the different like conversations they were having. He wanted to be, he wanted to show that he was this person of the time, that he was not this old yeah. fuddy daddy or whatever. And um, it made him look good too. Like yeah. he was kind of using Hater to fluff up his credentials, like in pieces that he wrote online. Like when he wrote in Salon, he was like a friend of mine, this brilliant transgender woman. You know, she's extraordinary and like, okay, now he's using her as a character in right. his pieces. Yeah. Right. I don't yeah, I don't know what to do with it. I hope that Hay is able to get his life in some kind of order and that um you know, I hope his, his wife family. has yeah. Yeah, extricated wife. herself from this yeah. situation. Yeah. Yeah. I also think to draw another parallel to the Al Franken situation. He, you know, his former students and whatever describe him as just awkward, absent minded, Mm -hmm. bad with social cues, you know, just like Al Franken is just like Jane Mayer talks about how he chews with his mouth open and swings his arm too much. Like, oh, these men are just like sort of innocent, bumbling, like children uh, ready to be exploited by women. (laughs) Um, Isn't it so sad? I, I mean, I think, yeah, this is a very bizarre and I feel guilty for being fascinating by it. I think it's. Its true purpose is as a cautionary tale. And as you say, Nicole, like, don't be an idiot. Ask questions. Yeah, yes. Just <laughs> trust but verify. Yes. Listeners, if you've read this, and I highly recommend that you read it, let us know how it made you feel. Our email address is thewaves at slate.com. Okay, Veronica Mars. It premiered in 2004. It aired on UPN and the CW. And after a long hiatus... It's eight-episode, fourth season, dropped in its entirety on Hulu in July. Nicole, you suggested this topic. I'm so glad you did because I got to watch Veronica Mars for the first time. Uh, Give us a little rundown on the season. Okay, so um, a little background on what Veronica Mars is. It's a neo-noir teen drama, or that's how it started out, with this plucky high school detective who sets about trying to find out who killed her friend, Lily. And there are all these different, you know, crimes of the week. It's very much a procedural, mystery procedural. And also, Veronica was sexually assaulted. She was a part of this kind of rich kid clique. And then her friend died. She was assaulted. And she just became something else. And she, you know, had to deal with the trauma of all these situations. Um, So we've got that. There was also a potential love interest named Logan, who was the poor little rich boy, bad boy kind of guy with anger issues. And, you know, he did some terrible things. He was very entitled. He just he was kind of an awful guy. But there was still something about him. Right. You know, he's got this little (laughs) soft heart that only Veronica can bring out, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And Veronica Mars in general was kind of looking at lower middle class Versus the rich elite in this small Southern California beach town called Neptune. Veronica Mars, Neptune. There you go. Okay, (laughs) Ah. so (laughs) there's a lot of exploration of class in this. Not so much race. The the race stuff was very bad in Veronica Mars. And it still is in this fourth season. Um, 
I also want to mention that in 2014, we had a crowdfunded movie for Veronica Mars, kind of wrapped up a lot of things and, you know, brought everybody together. And it was, I thought it was a really good movie. I enjoyed it. And so now, 2019, we've got this fourth season and I thought it was not good. (laughs) I want to say it was terrible, but I did not enjoy it. And I think because I found Veronica so much the same as a teenager um she you know she's very sarcastic she's kind of an asshole and when she was younger I could understand that because Mm -hmm. she had to put up these barriers to deal with the trauma or the fact that she was not dealing with trauma Mm -hmm. also her mother had left had left the family because of some addiction issues so again Veronica was a very traumatized defensive young woman and I understood why she used sarcasm to keep people at bay Mm -hmm. Now, as a 30-ish woman, I guess, um, she's still doing the same thing. And, it's you know, she's with Logan, spoiler, and, you know, he's trying to mature. He goes to therapy. He's trying to let go of his anger issues. He wants to make a home. He wants to stop being the poor little rich bad boy. And he just wants to be a good person with Veronica. And she is very dismissive of that. Mm-hmm. He proposes and she... It gives one of her, you know, little sarcastic quips and leaves. And I'm just like, I just, I, I don't know. And also, I felt that she was very mean yeah, yeah. in this season, which I did not like at yeah. all. I yeah. don't like mean people. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And and I, I don't have a problem with, quote unquote, unlikable female characters. I don't, I, I don't buy into that. You can be unlikable. That's fine. But what Veronica was doing was just... I don't it was just really mean for no reason yeah. and I felt uncomfortable watching it. I too was a big Veronica Mars fan like right from the beginning. I you know it was a show that I loved. I really like Rob Thomas. I actually after watching Veronica Mars, I read some of his YA books which at the mm. time I really hadn't read YA. I really like I Zombie and I really hated the beginning of this. It I actually I realized after getting through it that they were doing something like you know there was an interview in Vulture that Rob Thomas gave he's the writer creator and he talked about how um, you know he wanted to show that she hadn't developed that she hadn't matured that when she was you know she was a sort of prematurely mature teenager she was when she was a teenager she was living an adult woman's life in a way that you know she shouldn't have been doing but she had to she kind of got stuck and that she was still bantering like a teenager. You know, the way that I remember I used to do that with my friends in high school. We mm-hmm. would just like, that's the way we communicated was in banter. And then you grow out of that and you have actual conversations. And Veronica is stuck. And like a post, ex post facto explanation, that's great. But watching it, it was unpleasant to me. Her banter was annoying and it was as if, the, and there was no communication. There was no actual communication. It was just zinger, meet zinger. Yeah. And I hated mm-hmm. it. And I also, this is weird because I've got a terrible potty mouth. But the fact that it's on Hulu means that they can now oh swear and do some, you know, a little bit of softcore rumpy pumpy. But <laughs> softcore, excuse me, what? Softcore rumpy pumpy. <laughs> did you say humpy? I did, but that was, a, I misspoke. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I having only seen I Kristen it. Bell on the Good Place, uh-huh. uh, the the softcore rumpy humpy or whatever <laughs> made me really uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, and, and the swearing it just was wrong, right? It felt so gratuitous yes. and unnecessary. I have a potty mouth too, so I'm like, I don't mind that, but. You're clearly trying to show this isn't teenage yeah. Veronica yeah. anymore. Yeah. And every, like just people just talking about here's a blowjob, here's a handjob, here's cock, here's... The, and I'm just like, come on. Like, yeah. can you make it at least just a natural conversation? Because right. like, obviously we say these things in conversation as adults. Um, some of us do. <laughs> but it's just it just felt very much like... Like... You know, like a little eight-year-old boy who had just discovered these words and is going to keep saying them (laughs) all the time. And it it rang so false to me. I felt the dialogue was just, it it hit my ear all wrong. Totally agree. Hmm. So So I had never seen Veronica Yes, tell us, tell us, tell us. Um, So it's really interesting to hear y'all's reaction because I was immediately drawn in and I was like, ooh, what a fun series, you know? And I'm excited to go back and Mm. watch the original um, three seasons. Uh, 
I I will say it's kind of annoying to watch a show that is so beloved by fans <laughs> and who's um, where the the creator and the writers are so invested in sort of nodding to those fans that yeah. I feel like in every episode there was at least one moment where I'm like, oh, I can tell this is like a big treat for the fans. <laughs> and like, I'm not a fan, so I'm just like, cool. And, you know, I love Kristen Bell. Uh-huh. I, I also was surprised that the relationship between her and Logan were was like so beloved and from from what i read seems like one of the biggest like shipments of all time mm-hmm. you know fans just love them together and i didn't like their relationship at all their relationship didn't seem like loving it didn't seem like there was a ton of chemistry yeah. there was a lot of talking about the relationship but not a lot of having the relationship which is a big pet peeve of mine in movies and tv shows yeah for me the Logan and Veronica, which is shorthanded to love, L-O, capital V-E, for all the shippers out there, it really didn't mean, I don't want to say it didn't mean much to me, but I was not as invested. I came to Veronica Mars much later after the show had been off the air. I think I watched it maybe seven or eight years ago for the first time. So I didn't have that same kind of teenage nostalgia, mm-hmm. that same kind of I've been with them from the beginning approach, um, but I understood why they were put together with the whole opposites attract kind of thing, I guess. So it's not the the surprise or the plot twist that has broken everyone's heart. Didn't really affect me as in, like, I didn't, I wasn't betrayed by that, but I was betrayed by Rob Thomas, the creator's explanation. Well, of, so of let's, let me jump in here and say that there is a huge plot twist at the very end of the season, which we are now going to talk about openly. So our producer, our wonderful producer, Danielle Hewitt, will put this in the show notes. So consult your app to find out when you should skip to if you are not yet all caught up with Veronica Mars and want to be. So yes, in the, at the <laughs> yeah. very end of the final episode... Logan, Logan gets blown up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he gets blown up. The, there's a, a mad bomber. Um, the mad bomber leaves this one bomb behind and it ends up taking out Logan. And this is right after Veronica and Logan have gotten married. She does a little flirtation with Leo. She realizes, no, uh, Logan is who she I want. She has a dream about him. Yeah. Um, and so Veronica could have potentially been happy. But Rob Thomas, in all of his interviews, has explained that happy and neo-noir do not go together. And so in order to keep the show interesting, basically Veronica has to stay alone. She has to stay miserable. She has to stay traumatized. And I reject that so heartily. I think that is ridiculous. And again, I don't have any particular affinity for Logan. Logan is who he is. Like, he never really did much for me as a person, as a character. But to the idea that a woman has to be single and miserable in order to make a show interesting is ridiculous. In yeah. 2019, no. I don't know why Rob Thomas thinks that needs to happen. This is also a problem that he has with iZombie, where the main character, Liv Moore, who is a zombie. Liv Moore, get it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my she, God. That's so much. Almost all of her boyfriends die or like the main guy that she's with. There's always some kind of conflict to keep them apart. It's currently in its final season. So whatever. But anyway, Rob Thomas clearly has a problem with making the women, his female protagonists, happy. The idea of them being in a committed relationship just disturbs him on some kind of level and I I think that is sexist <laughs> I like to get to the heart of the show I think that he like he has no imagination and because he is unable to wit maybe he hasn't witnessed that in his life and so he can't whatever but I'm like if you are the kind of person who create can create a teenage gumshoe and a, a a zombie coroner you can create a woman who is in a relationship and still able to do fantastical things. Yeah. There's one part of his explanation that I do give some credence to, and that is that as well as keeping Veronica uh, miserable, driven, sad, you know, keeping her away from that happy place, he also wants her to leave Neptune because he doesn't want to have like a Cabot Cove problem. Yeah, right. You know, where there's so much happening in this one little town that kind of also looks like paradise in certain ways. 
So that that I will give him a little bit of credence for, but I, I'm with you otherwise, Nicole. It's a, like this constant thing of killing people, you know, killing off a love interest as soon as love has been found after much trauma, like almost literally the the, the next day after they get married mm-hmm. is fucked up. Yeah. And I think he's acting like it's a genre mandate instead of yeah, just something yeah. he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not that happy and neo noir can't go together. It's that just he doesn't want that to write that show, which yeah. like okay, but that's your choice. I also think the way he describes what he wants the next couple of seasons of Veronica Mars to be if it gets picked up is, you know, he wants it to be more of a procedural yeah. and not Something with like in this um, season where there's like one season long arc with a big criminal you need to find. And I actually think a procedural would lend itself more to a happy relationship mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that because that's not the one of the main plot lines. If you think about like law and order or anything like that, you don't see much about the people's personal lives in a lot of them. But I also think it was partially and again, this is just something that I don't know he wanted to outright admit like he probably feels really stifled by the love that a lot of fans have for Logan and so didn't want to spend the whole rest of his time writing Veronica Mars with people being like, well, couldn't she get back with Logan? Maybe she'll get back with Logan, you know, Yeah. which I just don't get it. He's so boring. Yes. Yeah. If you're if you go back to watch the original three seasons, oh, I will. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You will see why I personally am not like super invested in him. I also think that there's opportunity for Veronica to have a love, love interest, whether it's Logan or not. And you could be like, like Columbo kept his wife Leo, off screen. Right. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. there are all kinds of ways to do that. You could, I mean, we had Castle, we've got Bones, we've got all these different examples where couples or people who are flirty with each other, whatever, work together and make it interesting. Maybe also the idea of Logan as this Navy person, yeah. he could figure out how to fit him into Veronica's crime world other than Logan as a protector, which would have some issues, you know, with that. So I do, on one hand, I do understand what he, what Rob Thomas is trying to do, but I think that he has failed in his explanation. I think that he has a failure of imagination behind it. I also think moving Veronica away from her friends and, you know, her father, the people who kind of anchor her, I don't. I don't know. Like Mac, who yeah. was a character in the first seasons and in the crowdfunded movie, she is a hacker. She's like very super, you know, super intelligent. She does all kinds of great tech stuff. And she wasn't in this season. And um, she revealed that, you know, Rob Thomas talked to her about the fact that he's trying to kind of move Veronica on her own. And that means moving her away from her friends. And so the mm-hmm. actress, and I can't think of her name, I'm sorry, uh, who played Mac was like, I don't want to be a part of that. If, you know, part of what the uh, marshmallows, which is what the fans are called for the show, <laughs> um, marshmallows like seeing Veronica interact with her friends as much as they like seeing her solve crimes, which mm-hmm. is true. Um, mm-hmm. So to move them away, to move her away, and also to show that she continues to sabotage friendships. Right, right. That she, there was a, a burgeoning friendship in the show in this uh, season four and then Veronica spies on her bugs her office and things like that so she um, is continuing to sabotage potentially new relationships so I don't know why I should trust uh, that when she goes away and finds whatever new town that she's going to be in that it's going to be something where she suddenly opens up her heart Mm -hmm. also I, if I remember correctly it was like we did a, a time jump to a year later a year later that's right because Rob Thomas was like, I don't want to really deal with a mourning Veronica. I want to oh see her like gosh. move on. And for me, when we do that, when uh, showrunners do that, it also prevents the audience from mourning, which is part of why he's having such backlash now. Mm-hmm. Like the audience isn't able to fully grieve because you've pushed us forward in time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think Rob Thomas's idea of what a happy woman looks like is antiquated the fact that he can do so much to flip a noir the noir genre on its head with the veronica mars story and then wants to rely on the foundation of noir to keep her miserable i don't like that i don't like it at all and i do think that it's a little sexist and maybe he needs more women in the writer's room all right that's all the time we have for mars and neptune uh (laughs) if you're a marshmallow 
I would love to hear what you thought about this season and especially about the big twist at the end. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. Time for our recommendations, and we're going to kick off with our dearly departing production assistant, Alex Barish. Alex, what do you recommend in your final act as production assistant? I have agonized over this. The the pressure is (laughs) high. Um, I don't know if anyone here has watched this, but my recommendation is going to be She-Ra, the Netflix yes. cartoon. Nicole is nodding. This gives me hope. I used to watch Shira when I was little. <laughs> See, I have no relationship to the original show, mm-hmm. but Noelle Stevenson, who is the showrunner, I've been following her since her like gay fandom days, like on Tumblr, yeah. and sort of watched her come up. And she's also she's she comes from comics, so she's known for Nomona and for Lumberjanes, which are both oh. excellent. But I think she's like twenty seven years old, wow. and she is now the showrunner for this show on Netflix. And cool. she sort of took the the queer undertones from the original cartoon and was like, I'm going to make this text. <laughs> so it's this very cool, like, feminist, funny, charming, like, casually queer show. And it's just, I don't know, it just makes me so excited about the future of cartoons and of TV generally as this sort of generation comes into its own and starts calling the shots. And it's just this really delightful show. The new season drops on Friday, but there are already two. And it's like very bingeable and delightful and I just want to evangelize it to everyone of all ages because it's great. This is such a basic question but like when I think of it's is it kind of meant for children and and if so like how long are the episodes like is it like a Saturday morning cartoon? Yeah I mean it's the half hour episodes or maybe even 20 minutes but um and it is definitely something that you could watch like as a you know nine or ten year old I would Mm -hmm. think but it is also emotionally sophisticated. Yeah. And I'm not saying that in an offensive way. I'm yeah, just yeah. saying, like, the dynamics between the friends and the sort of relationships on screen and the themes that they deal with are very much... Like, there's enough to grab onto mm. as, you know, you you don't have to be a kid to enjoy it because I am enjoying it immensely and without <laughs> shame. So everyone go watch she on Netflix. Thank you for that recommendation. I actually know... A queer who has a horse named Shira. So I've been meaning to watch it on on that horse's recommendation alone. <laughs> Between the two of us, I hope we can convince you. Yeah, you've horse. convinced me. <laughs> All right, June, what do you have? So I feel a little bit bad for recommending something that is only available currently in the US on BritBox. But a lot of people have BritBox, people who like to watch cozy British mysteries and, and, and I'll actually also... Um, contemporary British shows. I, I must admit I'm a little bit addicted to Holby City and Casualty uh, as well as the soap operas. But anyway, anyway, the show that I'm recommending today is called Damned and it is a sort of 30 minute, two seasons of six episodes and it's a workplace comedy. Um, it's set among social workers in like a child protective services type agency um, and it is kind of in that style of The Office or like the thick of it. It's excruciation comedy. But there is a real and, and the people are cynical and, and hard bitten. But there is a kind of ultimately a sincerity to it that they are people in a really, really hard job with no support and no, uh, you know, their their funding is going and they're trying to help kids and help families and they would never admit to sincerity, but there really is, like, there are actual stakes in the show, as well as it being very dirty and very funny and very, just makes me laugh, but it also, there's a real tragedy to it as well. So, damned. It's got Alan Davis and Joe Brand, who's one of the co-creators, and also Himesh Patel, and it's, I really recommend it. Britbox. Never even heard of it. Mm. Also recommend that. <laughs> Nicole, what's your recommendation? Okay, so I, too, am going to recommend something that maybe is a little limited, but it is Waitress, the musical. Ah. I loved it. I took my mom and my sister to see it this weekend, and I, I saw the movie. Waitress is based on the movie, which is based on the book. The book is by Jesse Nelson, and the movie is from 2007, which starred a very young Carrie Russell and Nathan Fillion, and it is about a young waitress named Jenna who makes pies on a 
daily basis for this diner, and she's in an abusive relationship with her husband, Earl. It takes place in the South, if you couldn't tell by the name Earl. (laughs) Um, And she becomes pregnant. She does not want to be pregnant. And so she decides to keep the baby. She goes to the new gynecologist in town. Um, His name is Dr. Jim Palmiter. And they are attracted to each other. So we have to (laughs) deal with Jenna's feelings for the new doctor. Yeah, so we kind of see what happens with the relationship between Jenna and the doctor. It's about not only just like believing in yourself, trying to better yourself and better the life for the, uh, the child that you may be having, but it's also about ending family cycles of abuse. And yeah, so the musical, the songs and lyrics are by Sarah Bareilles. It is beautiful. Um, the current cast on Broadway, I'm not very familiar with. I'm not a musical person, um, but I was just blown away. There were several times I was crying a Aww. little bit, and I would like try to cover it up, like, oh, it's so cold in here. My eyes are wide. <laughs> um, but Aww. the music, the cast members, their voices were crystal clear. I don't, you know, like, God bless the sound people and all that stuff, but also their voices were just beautiful and the harmonies were incredible so it was perfect for me I loved it it's it's great uh, if you're not able to see the musical it is touring there is a, a tour happening as well if you're not able to see the musical I would strongly encourage you to watch the movie again from 2007 because it's, it's fairly what and what it's like it's, it's about the same and it's just it's just really it's just fantastic I loved it so much oh that sounds really charming I'm gonna recommend a personal essay in the Paris Review. It's called The Crane Wife. It's by C.J. Hauser. It was published on July 16th. I think a lot of people read it. At least a lot of people recommended it to me. Yes, it's um, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It, I actually thought to recommend it because of our is it sexist question about people who want a no drama relationship. The piece is written by a woman who broke off an engagement with this terrible, maybe emotionally abusive, definitely gaslighting romantic partner. And then she immediately goes down uh, to research whooping cranes for a book she's writing. She tags along with a conservation group, just sort of a motley crew of people who are trying to determine whether this certain marshland has the correct conditions to support these endangered cranes that live there. It's it's so gorgeous. The the writer makes it into a metaphor for this relationship that she was in where her partner wanted her to just calmly accept his cheating, his neglect. He just wanted her to not need anything or set no expectations for how she'd be treated. It's a really, really lovely piece and tugged at the old heartstrings. And I learned something about whooping cranes, too. She writes very well about, you know, the land and the animals. It's called The Crane Wife by C.J. Hauser in the Paris Review. That's it for our show. Thank you to our beloved production assistant, Alex Barish. We wish him well on his next adventure at The New Yorker. Thank you also to our producer, Danielle Hewitt, who's always great, but sticking around. For Nicole Perkins and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.